Welcome to Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts in a variety of fields to uncover the systems and patterns that help us to conceptualize and reconceptualize our world. I'm Julie Stern, founder and principal facilitator for Learning That Transfers. And I'm Trevor Elio, English language arts lead for Learning That Transfers. This podcast uses our mental model as a sense-making tool through acquiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships to unlock new situations. Our guests identify three to five concepts at the heart of their field, and we discuss how those play out in a variety of settings. You can find out more about our work, including our online courses and other professional learning offerings at learningthattransfers.com. This week on Conceptually Speaking, I'm joined by Joe Schmidt and our very own Nichelle Pinkney, co-authors of the upcoming book, Civil Discourse, Classroom Conversations for Stronger Communities from Corn Press. With the current state of our dumpster fire national discourse, this book could not be coming at a better time. For posterity, at the time of recording, there are dozens of bills being drafted in state legislatures around the country attempting to censor any dialogue of so-called divisive concepts, historical injustices, and the fraught, complex nature of America's past. Now, more than ever, educators require reliable, research-based scaffolds and frameworks to foster the types of dialogue, discussion, and debate required to continue our shared democratic project. To that end, Joe and Nichelle's book detail how to go about co-constructing classroom communities using the CUBE method to make sure that civil discourse is possible. We really have we've come up with what we call the CUBE approach or CUBE for discourse. Um, it's C-U-B-E-D, um, C for courage, U for understanding, B for belonging, E for empathy, and then that gives you to D for discourse. Um, And we really think that a lot of what we're doing boils down to just that, that if you really get uh, your staff, your peers as colleagues, and even your students to just have that, um, the courage to have these conversations with a shared understanding um, that's fostered in a sense of belonging in the classroom where we build empathy, then you're far more likely to have success with the discourse. It's no surprise that two humans who wrote a book about the nuances of productive conversation were such fantastic podcast guests. Stay tuned for an informative and a lively discussion about civil discourse. Enjoy. So I am here with Nichelle Pinkney and Joe Schmidt, and I'm incredibly excited to talk about their upcoming book, Civil Discourse, Classroom Conversations for stronger communities. Um, with everything happening in the, the world right now, I think that this is certainly a book that teachers and classrooms really need. So I am just kind of curious, what are you all most excited about when it comes to this book? I would say the most, the thing I'm most excited about is literally giving and helping teachers and giving them a guide to how to have those conversations. Like the reality is at this point, teachers that are feeling um, stressed about what they can cover and all those things, it literally comes down to where do I go from here? And so just to alleviate that stress from teachers and allow them to see that they can have these conversations, they can do it, and just there are ways to do it. Yeah, I would say for me, it's, I think a lot of what Nichelle's hitting on. Um, I mean, the idea of the book, the inspiration for the book, you know, a little more than a year ago was, Um, I do a lot of PD with educators um, here in my state and around the country. I get invited to speak. And it was just the the topic that just kept coming up from everybody 
who would say, you know, uh, with COVID, so many state uh, council for the social studies conferences went virtual. And so they were able to just do things differently. Um, and people would say, would you come do this? Would you do that? And um, for me, the big one was Florida said, will you come do a keynote address? And I said, sure, what do you want? And they said, well, we've heard you talk about, you know, like conversation, civil discourse stuff before. And teachers just really need a pep talk, right? They really, it's not even about teacher moves, although that's great. They just need to, they just need to feel good about what they're doing. Um, and then that, of course, led into some of the teacher moves and the other stuff, but it was just like, man, this is social studies educators specifically, but I think educators just in general, and it hasn't gone away in the past year, you know, we're seeing so much of it with school board meetings um, and just out in the community, people are just at a point where the idea of disagreeing with somebody um, on something that you feel really passionate about is uh, stressful. And teachers are kind of in the middle of that. And I'm just so excited to be able to help with teachers to say, here, here's something. There's no guarantee that this will fix everything. <laughs> it might not fix anything, but there's something. This is Nichelle and I's best thinking of all of our years of experience to just give you somewhere to start because we can't just not have the talks. Yeah. And what you're kind of touching on is something that, you know, I've experienced anecdotally and, and sort of seen on social media that it's not really as much as, you know, the students struggling with these conversations as much as it is the teachers creating the conditions that will make the students be able to have them. That is the most fearful. Not that having productive classroom discourse with students doesn't require scaffolding and practice um, and, you know, opportunities for them to hone those skills. But just as sort of a baseline, uh, there is a lot of anxiety, as we were alluding to, about teachers even opening space or holding space for those dialogues to occur and for those skills to sort of be cultivated. So um, what are some of the concepts that you all explore and discuss in the book that will help teachers hold that space and open up room for dialogue that is productive? I think we can sum up our book. Um, we really have we've come up with what we call the cubed approach or cube for discourse. Um, it's C-U-B-E-D, um, C for courage, U for understanding, B for belonging, E for empathy, and then that gives you to D for discourse. Um, and we really think that a lot of what we're doing boils down to just that, that if you really get uh, your staff, your peers as colleagues, and even your students to just have that, um, the courage to have these conversations with a shared understanding um, that's fostered in a sense of belonging in the classroom where we build empathy, then you're far more likely to have success with the discourse than if you just jump into discourse. And I know Michelle and I have talked, like that's one of the number one rules. Like if you see something interesting on the news, don't walk into class tomorrow and just talk about it. Like if you haven't built the other pieces, um, and I think that's what we really try to lay out. Yeah, yeah, these conversations can be tough, but we can structure the discourse in a way that if you've built out the rest of C-U-B-E, the discourse that we think has the, the highest chance of success. I like that, Joe. You did a good job. <laughs> I would have to agree with him. At the end of the day, it comes down to those, um, to those concepts. Um, 
And I think in the culture that we live in right now, that having that courage and understanding and allowing students to know that they belong and to be empathetic about situations and circumstances allows for them to have a discourse that they can then bring outside of the schoolhouse. Because my dream is that they bring it outside the schoolhouse, at home, social media, just everywhere, because we're seeing all of it around us that is not strong. It's, it, it's, we're not having those discussions and then we're not having them with those concepts in line. But I think me and Joe have said we were going to focus on two of them. <laughs> we talked about we're going to focus on belonging and empathy, even though we may go into the other ones. <laughs> yeah, so, so let's start there. And a question that I kind of have rolling around that is something that I have kept in mind whenever I've tried to foster discourse in my classroom is how can I provide opportunities for all students to have conversation to share their views to feel like it's a space where their views will be respected if certain students views even in an unintentional way um, risk or damage the potential for other students to feel like they belong in that space or to feel like they're being given empathy i would say michelle can take the lead on this you know because i think it is about that belonging first it's about building the the community um, and we lean into community, obviously, very heavily with the book titled that, but, but it's classroom community, it's school community, it's community community outside of those walls. Um, as Nichelle was saying, you know, we wanted to go beyond that. But I think that first really kind of big piece in there before you can get to anything else, um, and this is where Nichelle does such a great job, is really building that sense of community in a class. So uh, thank you, Joe. Like, I think at the end of the day, we have to understand that. I, so I guess I'll, I'm an anecdotal person, so I'll go there. That idea of having to, where I first started teaching, knowing that my four walls were going to be those four walls for students that they knew that we were going to have conversations. They were welcomed. They were they belonged no matter what anyone said outside of those four walls and just setting that tone and setting that tone at the young age of 22 is a big feat when your students <laughs> are 18. Like and it, um, it's a big thing, but it was the idea of I needed them to know that they did belong there and they belonged in any room that they found themselves in and they had a voice in those rooms. And I think a lot of times um, our students feel like they don't have a voice and they don't belong, um, especially right now. Um, I even think sometimes we feel like we have that voice. Um, Joe's done a lot of extensive work about the internet and what's shared and what shouldn't be shared and what's, you know, clickbait and all those things. And I, that idea of even that voice, having power in that voice to be um, true in it and to be authentic in it allows our students to see more and more how they belong and to let them know that they do have a voice. And so um, that was always my goal as a teacher. It's my goal as a curriculum director is to make sure that everyone knows that they have a voice and that they belong where they are at that time. And, and I think that that's a really important point. And if we're going to connect anecdotes, you know, that's something that I have seen with my students as well, that because they are being given an opportunity to have discussions that are authentic and are rooted in real world problems and situations 
and they are are hungry for those sort of sense making opportunities. Uh, I do find that they are even more like incentivized to treat each other with care and respect and to value each other as fellow members of the community because they don't want to lose the opportunity to do that um, because they know that it's special and they know that it is um, a, a place that they don't typically have access to because their other, I guess, uh, mode to engage in that discourse is the interwebs, which as we all know is, you know, algorithmically incentivizing toxic, negative, polarizing conversation. So to be in a place where, uh, you know, the incentive architecture is built towards community and belonging and sense-making instead of, you know, getting the most number of likes for your meme, uh, I'd, it's powerful. So Michelle, uh, Joe's talking about the, the internet. How do you see the discourse that students engage in outside of school um, affecting or shaping the empathy and belonging you're trying to foster inside your four walls of the classroom? Well, I think it sets a tone that if in those four walls, we can get along. And and I think a lot of people think when you talk about that belonging, and I'm talking about that community, that that means we all agree and it's going to mm. be like this world Kumbaya. where, yes, and that is not what we're saying. We're saying, because I am a strong believer that to to have true discourse we there has to be a moment where you know you have to look and say and joe and i've done this a lot i'm like i never looked at it like that and he's like i'm just bringing another side and vice versa and and then it changes that whole conversation but i think we're in a time where sometimes um not agreeing makes people feel like oh that means i don't belong and i don't think that's true or that it's not a sense of community i don't think that's true either i think that the idea that people may not agree but can respectfully say i heard you i hear you i may not agree but i hear you and i respect that you have an opinion and that's it. That still brings community. That still says you belong in the room because I was respectful enough to hear what you had to say and mm-hmm. vice versa. And I think um, that's the piece that I that we want to see stronger outside in the community, I think. Outside of the school is the idea that it's okay that we may not agree, but that's how we agree, how we agree and how we disagree is the part of belonging and understanding people. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, I, I know we talk about it in the book, and I think it's just so obvious that sometimes people miss it. There, I don't think that there's a community out there that reaches its full potential by ignoring or cutting out pop, parts of its population. You know, I had a mentor for years, and so always reminds me, none of us are as smart as all of us. And if you're thinking about, you know, outside those community walls, you know, there's all these issues going on that a local community, a state level community, you know, federal United States that we need to problem solve. And even if we're not all necessarily working together, but if we're at least hearing as many different ideas as we can, and like Michelle said, not if we hear 10 different ideas, all 10 ideas can't be the best idea. All 10 ideas can't be the one that we go with. And so you are going to not always be picked or not always quote unquote win. But I can't imagine that there's really a long-term structure in which only hearing two or three ideas from the same two or three people 
will result in long-term better results than hearing 10, 12, 15 ideas from 10, 12, 15 different people, right? I mean, that's, I think that's what we want our students to be able to go out and do. Here, it's a disagreement about whatever, right? A topic in class, a piece, a piece of the curriculum or current events, you know, but four or five, 10 years from now, they might be a city council member and a business owner and a farmer who are trying to figure out how to solve an economic issue in their town. And if we say, well, we're not going to listen to you, you know, we may be missing the best answers. Um, and I think that the, the classroom environment is that little bit of that democracy laboratory where all ideas can be put out on the table and played with. And like, I may, you know, I had an old colleague of mine, a good friend of mine who I always used to say, I'm good for one good idea a year. Right. And we give them a hard time for that. But the thing is, that one good idea a year did make us better when we did find that one good idea a year. So to ignore them and say you never have good ideas was still probably true, but we still let him bring his ideas to the table, <laughs> hoping he'd hit his home run once a year. Well, you, you use a word there that's very interesting that I, that I really like, which is the notion of playing with ideas. And I, I think a lot of popular conceptions of classroom conversation isn't discourse as much as it is debate. So I'm kind of curious in the book, how do you sort of transcend that idea of classroom discussion being a zero sum battle royale, where it's like, you know, idea versus idea slug fest. And, and even it's looking like online, there's like a whole debate culture on YouTube where it's like politician X destroys politician Y with facts and logic. And it's everything is this sort of gladiatorial combat. So how do you move beyond debate and towards sort of discourse or dialectic or, or like conversation with the with the, an endpoint that doesn't involve winners and losers, but a shared understanding? How do you guys foster that? Trevor, I don't know if you, uh, you probably didn't get to read the sneak preview of the book, but you're reading chapter two right now. We spent a <laughs> lot of time and even internally debating, like what words were we going to use? What were they going to mean? And that's part of that understanding. The, the you in cube is an understanding of words. And one of them is dialogue, discussion, and debates. And, you know, we feel like if you're going to have a discussion, right, these things are different. But if you're going to have a discussion, but you tell kids, well, we're going to debate, you know, whether or not we should build the southern border wall tomorrow. Kids have a perception of debate, right, Trevor? It's the exact thing you just said. <laughs> Anytime there's a debate, there's people yelling at each other and there's instant poll results. Who won? Who lost? Three, yep. right? It's that knockout punch. And then it's like, oh, no, it's actually a discussion. We're just here to listen to ideas. But kids come in with uh, like, I'm going to throw that knockout punch. You're already behind. And so we, we really encourage you to understand discourse shows up in a lot of different ways. And fortunately for us, they're all letter Ds. So we have the three <laughs> Ds of discourse that are dialogue, discussion, and debate. And in the book, we've put together a series like, here's what they look like. Here's what a teacher does in each of these. Here's what a mm. student does in each of these. And here's things to keep in mind. For example, like with debate, like, we don't want, if this is a heated emotional topic, you probably should not be lining up kids for a debate, right? There is a time and place for debate. There are skills specific to debate. 
contested heated emotions are not things we would want kids to be. But that's not saying don't touch them, don't talk about them. Have an open dialogue or have a discussion. And again, think about the parameters um, that you're bringing into it because we do want you to have that. So we thought very hard and deep about what does that mean? Because we think that's one of the ways teachers can kind of already set themselves and students at a disadvantage is by not fully understanding what they're actually trying to accomplish. There is certain things, like you said, there are certain things you should debate and just certain things that you shouldn't. And I think, um, unfortunately, I think because of um, the rhetoric that, oh, debates are how you get kids involved and all this. So people are like, yes. oh, yes, when my when my appraiser walks through, we're going to be debating. I'm not going to say a topic here because... <laughs> Some people may be like, what? You can't debate that? So you, I'm going to debate for when my evaluator comes in. It's going to be it's gonna be great. And then, oh, no, everything breaks out. And you're like, what happened? And me and Joe can be on the side like, oh, my God, this was a heated um, conversation. Your students already knew. They came in. They were fired up. Mm. They were ready. And it doesn't end well. It, at the end of the day, it doesn't. And then what is your goal? Like, when we hit some of those topics and think about it, what is your goal? Like at the end of the day, do we want a winner or a loser? Or do we really want kids to understand that there are multiple perspectives of this event or this issue or this uh, topic? And so really knowing your outcome, but like Joe said, that is chapter two. And we've had some really detailed conversations about what that looks like. <laughs> And there's great new research out from um, just last summer, uh, July 2021, from McAvoy McAvoy, where they really just addressed. They said, okay, well, we're going to have some classes, some students talk about topic X, and we're going to say, you're going to debate it, and we're going to kind of figure out a winner. And then some classes taking the same topic and say, okay, well, we're going to put you in small groups. And we're going to have you discuss, you, you're going to try to find the best solution, right? So it's just that framing. And then they pre and post tested the beliefs kind of on a political spectrum of the students. And you found, you know, like your uh, inverted bell curve, right? There were some students who were more liberal on this topic, some that were more conservative. And when they lined up kids basically as a whole class debate, um, they found research about uh, uh, young ladies are less likely to feel confident to speak up in that setting compared to the small group setting. Mm. Um, other students didn't feel there was just a different tone. But what really stood out is in this environment, that bell curve of political ideologies actually gets wider and more extreme. But when those same topics were done in a way of, okay, we're going to put you in small groups you two agree with this, you two disagree, you've got that political spectrum. Now we just want you to talk about like what, try to reach a consensus on the best solution to it. There was more student engagement, people felt more comfortable speaking and that bell curve, inverted bell curve closed. It moderated the beliefs. And so again, there's points and times and skills based of all these. But if you're thinking like, okay, well, my students are gonna be really engaged by debating this, I mean, the research says that it's it's not, and setting them up in, in, in the manner of debate may actually give the more extreme views. And when you're probably hoping, I think most educators are like, okay, we're going to talk about this. So people hear both sides, students get more exposure. I think inherently we want to try to moderate beliefs. I don't think that's that's a really intentional piece, 
But I think when we're working with kids, we're like, oh, I hope they hear all the sides and they come to a better understanding, right? Back to our you and understanding. Um, but again, just the structure that you lay them out and the goals you're trying to get to will play a large role in what the students actually get out of it, whether or not you're actually planning that. So we try to set the stage for knowing what you're trying to plan. Wow, I, I love that. I love the distinction between each of those things. And that is some very, very fascinating research. But it, but it, it definitely makes sense. Uh, you know, just the, the language around dialogue, discussion and debate. Uh, a lot of uh, research from uh, Lakoff and Johnson who talk about like the metaphorical and analogical sort of structures of how we think about things. And so many debate metaphors are taken from like military or strategic conflict. So like we are, students are entering into these conversations with these like underlying mental models about like about like battle. <laughs> so it's no wonder that that happens. Um, I, I am curious though, could you parse the difference between, um, you said that there's dialogue and conversation. So I think debate clearly sort of stands on its own. What, how do you all see those things as being different or distinct? And what are some ways that you might use one or the other? Well, we define dialogue is just an open sharing piece. So okay. Nichelle could come in and say, I think this podcast is the greatest podcast because, and shares her thoughts. And then at the end of that thought, her thought's done. And Trevor could say, uh, well, I think that this podcast is the greatest because, and then I could say, I think that this podcast is the greatest because, or I might say, you know, sorry, Trevor, or just for conversation, I might say, I don't think it's the greatest con, you know, we're but, editing that out. <laughs> or, or, yeah, we can edit that out, but it's, I'll just play, but, we, but we're not interacting, right? It's that yeah, one yeah. way piece where it's, we're just putting thoughts and ideas on the table. That's it. What we're having is a discussion, right? Nichelle says something. I'm like, oh, yeah, I like that. I'm going to kind of build off of that. And there might be senses of disagreement in there. But that's not the point isn't, you know, I'm thinking about our ELA writing, you know, in a debate, right? It's point, counterpoint, argument, or I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to counterclaim you right off the bat. But I'm just telling you what I think. And I might connect it off of what Nichelle says. I might connect it off of what Trevor says. I might counter some of it. But our goal isn't really to say, who is the best answer here? Hmm. It's really about putting ideas. And again, there's that interactive component, um, not a series of speeches where it's just, hey, here's what I think. Okay, next. Here's what I think. Okay, next. It, it, it's that engaging interactive uh, piece. And then when you get to the debate, right, we would probably come in having drawn sides some people saying this is the best podcast of all time. Others saying maybe not. Point, counterpoint, let's declare the winner. And of course, Trevor declares the winner is, this is the best podcast of all time. Huzzah! <laughs> <laughs> but that's how we see that distinction. Is it about sharing of ideas? Is it about kind of building off of each other ideas and refining? Or am I coming in to not acknowledge Trevor, there's no way, Trevor's on the other side, so Trevor could not have a good idea. And if he does, my number one responsibility is to beat back that argument so that it doesn't take momentum. Whereas in a discussion, again, back to that community building, if Trevor has the best idea, even if it's not mine, if, even if it's not quite what I agree with, how can we build off of that? And maybe I can shape it and go, yeah, and, but, you know, let's moderate it a little bit. We're not, mm -hmm. we're not here. 
so what are you all seeing as like one of the key moves or things that you can do in order to create the conditions for dialogue, debate, or discussion to happen? So, you know, belonging was one of the concepts that you all wanted to focus on, and it, it is vital in any classroom community. And I think it's very, it, it's easy for teachers to be like, oh yeah, like, you know, people feel like they belong in my classroom or there's a sense of belonging. Um, but like, how do you, how does one intentionally build or create that? It's one of those things where it's like, everybody knows it's good to have a healthy classroom culture, but how do you cultivate it? So I'm curious if you guys lay out any ideas or what your thoughts are on like, how do you establish the type of belonging that is necessary in a classroom to have these potentially fraught discussions and, and have them be um, healthy and productive? So um, I guess the first thing is, um, in the book, I tell a story about actually going to um, a class and them actually talking about how building that community. Um, and it's funny when um, when we had um, the reviewers read it, one of our feedbacks was like, oh, this person has to be an elementary person. And I laughed because I was like, I'm not an elementary teacher. <laughs> I actually did this in high school, um, <laughs> a tough high school too. Um, the, um, so the first thing we started with is we had, um, I taught a government class, government and U.S. history, um, high school. So we had a contract in our class, um, which was perfect because I was teaching U.S. history and government, like who wouldn't yeah. say, let's do some type of contract here. Um, then my first year, I had the rules, you know, um, you're supposed to have those rules up, supposed to let kids know what they are. And then supposedly they agree upon it. But really, I don't know who really did because I just got yeah. all my papers back and no one followed them. Um, <laughs> and then by January, I was like, either I'm going to quit or we got to change this up. And so that's when the idea of um, a contract came about. And I can't remember if I was sitting somewhere and heard it or if I got a good idea. But either way, it wasn't my initial idea. Right. And so we started this contract. So we were talking about um, John Locke's social contract in class. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, we're going to create a social contract because things are not working. And these kids were looking at me like social contract. So we just started mapping out what does, what does it look like in this class for us, for everyone to get along? What does that look like? What does it look like? What should it look like if we disagree? Should things start happening? And it was so interesting to see kids um, well, they're teenagers, but actually agree upon things like they were like, oh, yeah, I would agree with that. We need to respect. What does respect look like? Like actually um, defining um, what these things are, because a lot of times we assume that mm -hmm. kids know what respect is. We assume that kids know what that that kids know what respect looks like they that they know what agreed looks like disagree like so we started defining what this is what it what does it mean to be a citizen in this classroom what does it mean to be a participant in this classroom so we all have a common definition of what we're talking about because without that common definition you have to think depending on the size of the area you live in when I first started um, teaching it was a smaller area now I live in Houston like so I have kids coming from all different backgrounds all different homes um, and so to make that um, effective you have to um, as we say in our LTT work acquire that concept let them know what is the goal here like and, and so we have all a common language and then from there we built upon this contract like and what happens when we break it what does that look like and so kids would talk about well what should what should Miss Pinkney do when you break it what should the class do and I was the last resort I think at one point 
things would happen. And before I could jump in, kids would be like, whoa, whoa, you're breaking our contract. And it was like that day I was like, yes, that's all awesome. I can. I can retire year two. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me start writing my book. No, um, that idea that it worked and to see these kids that everyone would be like, what, what are you doing? And I was like, we're just, we're agreeing upon this. Like we sign it, we make a big deal. We talk about in the book about, we actually had a signing ceremony. Like, can you imagine kids like really signing this sheet of paper talking about we're going to own it? And this was at a high school. Like, and my principal thought I was crazy when I said, are you going to come to the signing? He was like, the (laughs) signing? (laughs) The athletic signing? No, the the social contract of Miss Pinkney's AP government class. <laughs> but but like, that's great because coming? you're you're giving them an opportunity to engage in the type of document creation and community norm building that is, hey, guess what? Kind of necessary for a participatory democracy to function. So I, I love that you the like they are engaging in those practices themselves. And as a community, I think that's really important that as a community, they are defining what those things look like. Um, you know, I'm getting some like Socrates vibes where it's like, well, what is respect? What does it mean to be a citizen? Um, so I, I think that that's so important because it's very easy for us as educators to assume that either students know what, you know, effective conversation looks like or what respect looks like, um, or we impose our own definition on them that might not be, you know, necessarily as expansive or culturally responsive um, as if they created themselves, which is, which is huge. Yeah. What does it look like at home? What does it look like? And and some kids came from places where they it didn't look good, like disagreement mm. didn't look good. Um, and so that's when you have kids who get um, I don't want to say violent, but they get mad and their heart rates go up because that's what they see. And vice versa, yeah. you see people who like um, Joe just talked about how. Um, this the study showed how females kind of digress and they go back so then so that's a cultural thing in some places where I'm not supposed to have I'm not supposed to say anything I'm not supposed to disagree and so building that community I mean I'm a proud women's college grad I was like no we have voices in here ladies <laughs> and we're gonna use them and so that idea but no it it worked and um and I kept doing it for every year after that I was like if it could work here it can work and it kept working. And then my counterparts did it. And it was just like our students owning the classroom. It was their classroom. Trevor, you had said earlier, right? Like, oh, teachers know this. And I, I always say I was as guilty as anybody else for a long time, right? Okay, day one. Here's your syllabus. Here's the classroom rules. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I even did. Okay, make sure your parents sign it and come back. What if I'm 18? I don't care. This is not a. This is not about you being. A, <laughs> this is about your parents, right? And then you you tuck it away, and then that's day one and day two, and then on day one thirty two, there's a fight, and you have no idea how it went wrong because we have rules. But if you don't reinforce them, right? Like so, then eventually it was about putting the rules up on the wall, and pointing at them and talking about them. And whether it was, okay, it's Monday, Trevor, read through our agreements, or whether it's, okay, remember, tomorrow is a big discussion. We're going to start off with class. Trevor, what are our agreements? Nichelle, you're our agreement checker. And then giving them space. Okay, what, you know, what didn't go well? Well, we have an agreement to not interrupt each other, but we kept interrupting each other. Okay, what do you think? What do you think we should do about it? Because um, I had my last six years in the classroom, I had all of the juniors and then I'd senior electives. And we found this really interesting place 
for the for kids that age who would be told you know probably in the span of minutes almost every day you're you know you're almost an adult grow up you know do you know be more mature yeah. do something like that and no you can't go to the bathroom during class and i can't trust you <laughs> to chew gum right and so we like pretty, those pretty some of the rules right we would talk about with kids and so our district didn't have you know a lot of strict things like that so i'd say okay yeah you guys can chew gum you can eat food i don't care like really like really like all of our classroom agreements didn't have to be about discourse but it was about building yeah. this sense of belonging and i would say yeah if you want to bring in food that's fine, but you clean up your mess. And I don't mean anything around you. My class will be clean. And some kids were like, no, I'm good. Right. Like as a class, <laughs> we don't want and some were like, yeah, we're good. We're good. And so like that like class would get clean two or three times a day because they wanted that piece. Mm -hmm. Toward the end, I had a couch I didn't need. I brought in a couch and put it at the back of the class. Well, who gets to sit there? I don't know. You guys figure it out. Is it a sign up? Is it a rotation? Is it first come, right? And I taught senior sociology. One of my favorite days all every year was define fair, <laughs> right? They know what it feels like, but boy, yeah. can they not, right? And so that couch one was always, a, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Okay, well, you guys try mm -hmm. to figure it out. And so I felt like there was a sense of belonging because I wasn't there imposing things on them. And again, it was this weird spot where, you know, they would go out and do something stupid and people would be like, come on, you're, you're better than that. Be more mature. You're almost 18. Well, at the same time, it's like, do you have your hall pass to go, go to the bathroom? <laughs> and it just seemed like this weird beat. So I just kind of turned it to the kids and said, you tell me what this class looks like when you're here. And mm -hmm. I think that led, I loved discussions. My classes were set up the desks half face to the right, half face to the left. We talked all the time. And I would always say, don't look at me. You know, you're talking to each <laughs> other. But I don't think, you know, looking back, I don't think that would have been successful if I was like, day one, here's the rules. Sit down, be quiet, no talking. Day 17, why aren't you all talking during our discussion? <laughs> like, it's open time. Um, and so for me, that's why I think the the big key, and we said, like, for us, you know, here's here's a bunch but I think belonging is that such a huge piece because if students don't feel like they belong there, I think it's really hard to do much else. Yeah, that that's so important and so true. How many of the the quote unquote rules that we have sort of pre or prior established work against the agency and autonomy that we want to foster in our students? And then we are confused when they aren't able to act on, you know, those sort of like skills or, or competencies where it's like, you know, why can't you just be an independent learner? Um, yes, I will allow you to now go use, you know, the restroom and have a normal bodily human function, right? It's, it's, so, it's so contradictory in that, in that way. So I love that you bring up that tension that exists. Um, so how, speaking of tension, how do you navigate the fact that you, you are establishing a sense of freedom and ownership for students um, while still providing structure to make sure that dialogue stays on the rails um, and um, has some sort of, you know, generative or positive output at the end. So what does it look like to, to in, in our work with Learn the Transfers, we talk a lot about freedom within structure. So like, what does that look like? How do you, how do you allow that freedom while also providing the, a shared structure or understanding that's going to lead to positive discussion? 
Perfect. You're doing a great job of queuing all these up. So the other one we really wanted to stress was empathy. Um, and to queue it up, you know, it's not about, well, now we have agreements and everything's going to go, go well, right? It's still whatever that toughest conversation that you're worried about. When we talk about building empathy, we're talking about building the idea that we will disagree. And we have rules and structures in place to deal with that. But students really have to experience it. And so mm. we, we, we suggest thinking about the, the other ways that you can teach the skills that you want kids to have about this before you get to the contentious one. And Michelle's heard me say this a million times. My, my go-to all the time is, is a hot dog a sandwich, right? <laughs> is like, if you put it is all not. structures is structures in place. And then you have your students, you know, navigate a question. You're going to do a structured academic controversy, or you're going to do a Socratic seminar is a hot dog, a sandwich. And they struggle to navigate those pieces of the skills you want them to do. Cause then there's the underlying teacher component. What are you building on that? What is this, the curriculum alignment or the standards alignment? Is this about claims, evidence, reasoning? Do you want them to just come in with a strong thesis and then, you know, be able to argue? What is that piece? That's the underlying um, idea. And I, I feel like I say this more and more, you know, there might, there are people out there who say, don't teach my kid about X, Y, or Z, but I haven't heard, don't teach my kid to read and write. And so if we can keep coming back, right, if that's, if that's what this is really about, the, the topics are conversation pieces that get kids engaged to become stronger readers, writers, speakers, listeners. We bring that in. They still need practice. They still need to, is a hot dog sandwich. The one I use with my pre-service students, should the capital of Maine be in Augusta? It's like the eighth or ninth largest city. It's not, not really centrally located. It's on a river, but you need that anymore, right? There can be content specific pieces that fit in your curriculum that move student learning forward. And if Nichelle is like, yeah, it's Augusta. And I'm like, it's not like, I'm not, I, I, you're probably not getting a call from mom or dad about an upset parent about that. Whereas there's a lot of topics that you might, but until the students can navigate that empathy piece where it's like, okay, I know how it's going to go. I don't agree with Trevor but we can still walk out of this room together, then you can say, okay, let's use these structures we're familiar with. Now let's talk about contentious topic X, Y, and Z, remembering our classroom agreements, remembering the sentence stems that we use, remembering how we take turns or whatever, whatever the things that the educator puts into place then that, that gets that piece. That's why we say kind of over and over, you don't want to be rushing into that. It takes time to build that sense of belonging. Yes, and you will need it. It takes time to practice those empathy skills, the, the structures, the, the reading and writing, the thesis, the client, whatever you're having. More, it takes time. But I would much rather take the time building up those skills so that when that big day comes, it goes smoothly and students walk out feeling good rather than have rushed into it and then trying to backtrack and figure out where it went wrong. Yeah, you're right, Joe. Like they, um, I almost, after you said that, I was thinking in my head, almost every state and even when we work with the school, IB schools and all that, 
all of their standards or guide or everything it literally builds up like most courses build up like no one starts a class and say first day we're going in we're talking about the holocaust like what is it like who does that like um there's no i haven't been in a state yet that starts off their course like bam in your face like it starts slow and steady like and so <laughs> that's what you should do in your class like you should start easy like joe and i go back and forth about this we're both huge sports fans march madness is coming so we both have <laughs> our teams we already know like this is the fun part and so going through that something as simple as that um i used to joke with my football players like who's gonna like at the home school who how much are you guys gonna win by tonight how much how much so let's put it on the board like how many people <laughs> let's have some and then actually bringing up evidence because i have football players oh miss pinkney we're about to win this game tonight oh you are what evidence can you give me because last week such and such had this many passing yards are you gonna get that many this week because this team has this many so even starting to teach them how to use other things to justify their statements because a lot of times um people um they just kids want to just say something because well right now it used to be they just want to say something because they heard their parents now is they mm. want to say something because some tiktoker said it yeah. or some um i don't even know the other things i'm starting to get old but that one for sure is enough <laughs> for them to be like oh this one said it and so it's got to be truth right and so the next part is, yes, such and such did say that. Now, what have we learned in class to justify what they've, what they've said? What other source do you have? And so even something as simple as, like Joe said, is the hot dog a sandwich? And I told him, no, it's not. Well, Joe should have told me, Michelle, can you justify that? And I cannot. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but that idea that you have to allow students to, and we always did that. Like my students knew you can't have a conversation. We're going to have this conversation, but we want to back it up. We want to back it up with evidence, even if it's evidence from my my wonderful classmate next to me. That's okay. Because that's part of those talk moves. Like I love when Joe said, well, when Joe said this, and so starting to teach how do we talk? How do we have those conversations? but yes yeah it's too much <laughs> i did an i did a, a an argument map around uh is cereal with milk a soup and i'm like no and then so for like 15 minutes i led a group of teachers building the argument map and by the time it was done <laughs> i'm like god but i still can't accept it but that's one of those things like you have to work with kids if yeah. you don't have the evidence, right? If we're working with primary sources, I always say, look, point at it. What are you talking about? If you're if you're referencing the document, point at something in there. As Nichelle said, right? If you're building off of, I agree with what Trevor said because, right? You're building those pieces. And I think that's just that another subtle way that builds strong communication skills and helps set that stage for your classroom to be successful because you're building uh, the skills that need to come into it. You're helping support that empathy like Nichelle, what Nichelle said, I disagree with, but it doesn't make, I'm not disagreeing that she's not a horrible person. I disagree with her statement because, 
right? And so how do you give them those skills to navigate that? And it's just all, we think you practice it before you jump in, whether it's is a hot dog, a sandwich. When I was working with Nichelle's district, somebody said, it's a taco. And wouldn't you know, a room of like 70, 50, 60, 70 <laughs> teachers, we were off track for five, six minutes because they were passionate. They came from all angles. No, no, no. A taco is a type of sandwich, not vice versa, right? So then we're like, what's the hierarchy of sandwich <laughs> taco hot dog and then when i got done i'm like guys you know what we just did we were practicing those skills of mm -hmm. discourse and this could be the same thing if you were talking about political parties or government structures mm -hmm. or uh, different ways to handle inequalities right you all were bringing an idea to the table and then we started to sort through based on what you were saying. And they were doing it, you know, as professionals and having a good time and they had fun, but then you could see them kind of step back and be like, oh man, we got tricked. And it wasn't a trick. They just actually <laughs> yeah. enjoyed a conversation. But I kept saying, well, what's your evidence? What's your evidence? Mm -hmm. Right? And they just moved through a conversation. Oh, I, I, I love that. I love that so much. I'll go ahead, Michelle. No, I was going to say, and I think even we talk about in the book, um, so I was going to bring up the idea that when we talk about the empathy, about even the resources that we allow students to use or give students to use, because it also helps them to acknowledge different points of view. So I can't just bring in the same source all the time. I have, there's so many sources out there, credible sources versus non-credible, but that idea of allowing kids to be empathetic, even though my, at my home, we never watch CNBC, but this article that I read from CNBC. I don't know why we don't watch it because I agree with everything here. It just, it changes the view or it changes the um, rhetoric that's out there of, I almost say fake news too. Like, so building just different levels of empathy. Like we talked about building empathy and I acknowledge that you said this, I agree or disagree, but also acknowledging the resources and the things that have already been quote unquote uh, debunked as not reality or not good journalism or not good sources and different things like that, that, whoa, I can agree. We've, um, we did a training recently and allowed teachers to read articles and I didn't tell them where the articles came from. And it was very interesting to see how many of them thought this is the better article. Like this is more justifiable. And then when we start getting into where it was from, you could just see a difference in the, the room. It was like, oh, wait. Yeah. So some, some things you can you can do that it builds empathy to even allow them to see that okay there are different views from sources that i may not normally agree with that could be a, a valuable source and um have a good opinion and use so that's the other piece i like in regards to thinking about empathy and giving them those resources to be able to have these discussions and be able to justify because a lot of times building that in to making sure they have the the tools they need to be able to do this. Yeah. And so that's something else that's been kind of rattling around in my mind too, in that when we think about what is quality journalism, what is a reliable source that has the potential to be very sticky, um, you know, because all of us, regardless of our political affiliation or ideology, fall prey to confirmation bias. And we all think whatever aligns with our ideological position is the more reasonable, rational thing. And oftentimes we see something from another perspective as, as being fake news or being misinformation. Um, so do you all 
put any like guardrails in place or are there any like things that you go into to sort of like establish here's what we, here's how we could sort of confirm that this source isn't, you know, isn't totally magically objective, non-perspectival, like zero, whatever, but is at least operating in a way that is trying to adhere to reality or create a, a good faith argument or perspective. How do you guys sort of um, navigate that and, and sort of set those parameters for what counts as a fair, legitimate source? I think we can bookend it a little bit with a couple um, parts uh, of the cubed approach. And one is that understanding, like when you say misinformation or disinformation or fake news, what, what is that? And what does that mean? And how does that impact um, the information that you're coming, right? So there is a media literacy component to it. There's also, we really talk about you know, when you get to the discourse, the D part of it, you don't just be like, okay, big talk today, go, right? Like, <laughs> what are the structures you're putting in place? If it's a structured academic controversy, you are providing resources for them to work off of. You might be, if you follow um, in chapter uh, four, the E for empathy, we talk about the Let's Act framework. Uh, and I always say my favorite part in there is the T, the talk one, where it's, it's giving articles and it's not about, well, do you, Trevor, do you agree with that? Or what's your stance? It's about just looking at the articles and saying, okay, which of these articles think we should do X? And the example that uh, it's from Genevieve uh, McCaffrey from uh, University of Missouri, uh, when she writes about it in NCSS, she talks about Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. Should he be punished? Right. So you provide these articles. OK, well, which of these say he should be punished? Which ones say he shouldn't? Which of these are written by politicians? Which of these are written by athletes? Which of these are written by um, journalists, right? And then start, can you find trends? Can you start to look through? Are you seeing politicians look at it one way or the other? Are you seeing, right? Oh, and that's, that's, that's a layered approach into, you know, trying to get past, oh, well, that's that news station. So it's, it's fake news or it's not fake mm -hmm. news or it's this or it's that. But can you start <laughs> to say like, well, the people who think he should be punished though they tend to fall in this category. They tend to be from these certain news sources or from these uh, you know, careers. They're non-athletes who are politicians, like, right? And that's not to say like, oh, well then they're wrong. It's just to say, okay, did you notice people who are for it tend to fall in these categories, people who are good. And then what does that mean? Again, Trevor, I don't need you to take a stance yet. We'll get there. But what I want you to do is read so many different perspectives where you can start to do it. And as Nichelle said, you don't have to tell them where the news source is right off the bat, right? Have them read it. What do you think this means? What is the big point that they're getting at? Which buckets does it currently fall under? Now let's go a little deeper. Uh, so we do kind of cover that gamut of understanding you know, teaching kids misinformation and disinformation, and there's media literacy skills to be had in there. That's a big component of it. You know, but that's just another one of those things. Again, you know, are you going to debate a kid on their news source? Is that a winning fight that you want to spend your time on? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, in trainings, I talk about, you know, you can frame out a question and provide empirical data. And somebody in training once said, well, they'll just call it alternative facts. And I'm like, that's fine, right? Like, 
I'm not here to convince them that this is the, the end all be all I'm going to have this. And if they don't believe it, then great. Don't use it in your argument tomorrow. That, you know, that's, that's fine. That's, hmm. you know, there's so many other things that we can get into that and get, um, and get into it and get out of it with students that you would want to, you know, think about the media literacy, think about the structures. What are you providing? How are you having them tackle those? I mean, Trevor, I, I wish I, we could have like another six hours or we could just say, hey, Nichelle and Joe say you could, you could go by the book because I think we do a really good job of letting you know how all that's the book. pieces go. That, that's, that's the summary at the end. Trevor, that's a great question. Um, I really can't answer it in a couple of minutes because it's really such deeply embedded um, work. That was slick, now, Joe. You've been, you've been on some podcasts up. before. <laughs> oh, yes, go ahead, Nichelle. <laughs> I was just going to say, just making sure that students understand the purpose, the author, and the audience, like at the end of the day. Yep. And um, right now, with all of the different legislations that have passed, um, knowing which things that you give that 360 approach and actually allowing kids to see that, like, um, so that means, yes, I'm going to have to, I'm not going to name sources. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have <laughs> to show um a uh, a left a center a right i'm gonna like the game like i have to incorporate all three and there are um media outlets or articles written from different media outlets that do fall along that um spectrum and being able to know that um i say just being able to recognize it even with whatever political affiliation you may have or things like that being able to look at um what voice is in here so we're going into that ELA ELA part like what voice do you hear with the speaker here what do you uh who are they trying to um get this out to who is this written for why is it written this way what is the purpose behind it and then at the end of the day what are they trying to communicate what is the message that they want and as you go through those components so is that the message that you want is this the audience that you're reaching and getting kids to break it down like that um but like joe said you totally can buy the book or get one of us to come to your school in your district and we can break this down i have a wonderful training on it <laughs> Y'all are good. Look at you. That teamwork. <laughs> well, that that is a I think a fantastic sort of a, a way to wrap up the podcast. But what I I really love kind of ending on that note. When I think about one of the many reasons why we need more civil discourse, it's because the world that we live in today is more complex than it has ever been, and it is only increasing in complexity. And if we don't have the ability to come together and share different perspectives and form a cohesive dialogue and, and make sense of this collectively. Um, like we are in very, very deep trouble. So I, I love yes. that idea of it's not about filing things in, in like good, bad, right, wrong. It's this layered tiered approach where who said what? Why do you think they might have said it? I, I've got a lot of leverage whenever I teach rhetoric and media literacy with my ELA classes of just talking about motivation. How does it serve this person's interest to have this opinion? Mm -hmm. You know, who, who, how could they potentially benefit? And creating opportunities for students to have conversations that allow them to reach that level of depth and nuance. Um, and if we're going to talk about that idea of debate that we had mentioned earlier, I think there's a lot of assumptions that if kids are yelling and standing and screaming, they're engaged because they're not asleep. Um, but what you all are, are talking about, it sounds like it is cognitively engaging, where even if it is a, a classroom where it's just sort of like 
a, a like a really tight nuanced conversation as opposed to people up and screaming that's engagement they're they're having the types of conversations that historians have that media theorists have that cultural critics have and it's authentic and real and they've got to build that community themselves so i'm really excited to dive more into the cube method and the book overall it sounds like you'll have have really set the stage for uh, a beautiful framework to have some really powerful, meaningful conversations. So thank you all so much for coming on the show. Um, if I'll give you an opportunity to officially um, plug uh, where the people can find more of your work and resources <laughs> since you've already done it subtly in, in <laughs> such a fantastic way. Michelle's <laughs> pointing at me as I tell him Michelle created the bit.ly for the. Yes. Yeah, so um, you can, um, it's so cool. Our book is like everywhere, as my nieces say. Um, <laughs> you can get it from Corwin, um, as well as you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. Um, you can find us. This is the part where I like Joe to plug in because he has that voice. So we can say, and you can find this here, here, here. <laughs> yeah, you can search uh, again, civil discourse, uh, classroom conversations for stronger community. Um, you can search that through Corwin on Amazon. You can find us on social media. Um, I believe right now and probably by time this airs, it will still be uh, pinned on my Twitter account at Madison Teacher. Um, I have a, a recent blog that has some links to how to pre-order that. There were currently doing a series where we're interviewing the people who wrote the intro blurbs for the book mm -hmm. and given a little framework. Um, so you're hearing those voices as well. But as Nichelle said, uh, we're happy to come out. We have trainings to help educators do this. Um, I actually met with somebody um, today about can we do this with middle school kids? Can we set the stage with kids? And I said, is your staff on board? for supporting classroom agreements, because that's what I'm gonna tell the kids about. Do they have that shared understanding mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. everything Michelle was saying, but it's not gonna matter if then you send them back yes. to class and nobody listens to them. So yep. um, definitely follow us and uh, I'll let Michelle spell out her uh, Twitter handle because it starts to come up automatically, but I'm at Madison Teacher on Twitter. You can find all this stuff there. You can Google um, on Amazon and on Corwin, our book as well. And my Twitter handle is Miss Ms. Nikki underscore Miss Nikki underscore P. So, but I'm sure Trevor will have it in the what we'll call it. Yes, I'll, all links will be shared generously yes. in the show notes. So, thank you all so much for coming on. It was a fantastic uh, evening of. Would this be dialogue? Discussion. Dis discussion. 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 Of course, I'm gonna edit it out where I said it wrong and say discussion. <laughs> You'll probably edit out the part where we even considered debating that this was not the greatest podcast ever. Too. No, 100%. 100%. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us to understand our world. If you like this podcast, please like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform and join our community by visiting learningthattransfers.com.